Hi, I'm Badra. I learned to bike in my first week in San Francisco, and I haven't been walking since, almost. That's Badra from M24. This week, we're diving deep into Badra's story on Humans of Minerva. Welcome to Humans of Minerva, a podcast which captures the interesting stories of humans at Minerva. I'm your host, Ben, and today I'll be sitting down with Badra from M24. Hey, Badra. How's it going? Hey, Ben. Nice to meet you, finally. Yes, nice to meet you, too. So I know that I just introduced you as an M24, but you also just told me that you actually started as an M23. Is that right? I was an M23 until um, after the first semester that I decided to take a leave of absence and now an M24. But then I also spent like half of my time or more than half with M24, but the other half with M23 is some kind of like an M23 and a half, you can say. Just to stir the pot because I'm not in either classes. Which oh. one is better? Uh, well, you'll be surprised how many times I heard that question. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so came up with like very diplomatic answers to that perfect uh, let's hear here's it. what this is the, the closest to truth actually i think i spent just about as much time with both and they're both as interesting i think minerva admits very very similar people which is a nice thing it almost seemed like there are similar profiles in each class i appreciate how small is m24 and how close they are to each other and what they went through i think struggle bonds people so that that's nice and covid and all of that and i appreciate m23 the openness of everyone so I think they're both very similar and I kind of complemented my Minerva time. Oh, that's so, really yeah. nice. Because sometimes <laughs> I feel like having one foot in two different classes can actually be quite difficult. It's hard to join a class that you weren't a part of before. We know how exclusive and tight-knit these mm-hmm. communities are. So it sounds like, though, you were able to kind of build community in both classes. Is, would you say that's right? Yeah, I was lucky to find people in both classes. You said that the classes are quite similar, like similar half. Would you say there's a lot of distinction between the cultures of two classes? Well, the culture is different because I think the collective culture is made of the individual cultures and the, the demographics of both classes are quite different. But the people, I think, kind of similar sometimes. So like, have you ever met like an M20 who will feel like, oh, I've met a similar M22 or something? It's almost like, oh, you remind me of someone I've seen before. I wonder. Yeah, I see so, what you mean. That's cool. All right. I just wanted to, to, to stir the pot a little bit. So thanks for, thanks for letting me do that. Yeah. Um, and so what we like to do with this podcast is essentially get to know the students of Minerva beyond who they are at Minerva. I think one thing that you may notice, um, I definitely noticed when I was in Minerva, is that there's not much of a focus on your life before Minerva because our lives before Minerva were usually so different. And even if you told other people about it, most likely no one can relate to it because everyone's life is so unique. But that's also a bit of a missed opportunity because I think our differences are what make our community so beautiful and strong and so valuable. So really part of this podcast is trying to get to know people beyond who they are as a student at Minerva, right? And what we want to do is just basically start by asking you about your childhood. We want to hear a little bit about what it was like to grow up. So why don't we start by going all the way back? Where were you born? Where did you spend most of your childhood? I grew up in Alexandria, Egypt. I went to the same school for 14 years, and I stayed in the same city for 18 years. I only traveled once before Minerva. I have two siblings, and I feel that's kind of like a key thing because it really shapes my personality. Yeah. Why don't you tell me more about your siblings? Are they older? I am the youngest. My oldest brother is nine years older than me, and my 
second oldest brother is eight years older than me. It was honestly pretty cool because when I was like in third grade, one of my brothers was entering college somehow. So it's a, it's a very nice look into the future and you get to talk to their friends. And it's also like another word. I just realized that recently because I'm home right now and I'm visiting my family. And then I realized how all these factors combine into the personality that I have. Both of them impact me in a lot of ways. My second eldest brother has always been like an engineering kid. And that's basically how I used to play as a child. I always used to see pure joy in electronics and working with my hands with computers or programming and all of that. And I think that is definitely because of him. The most I remember about my childhood are two scenes. The first one is with my uncle, who was the one who encouraged my brothers and me. He used to get us like screwdrivers, computers, all of that. He got me my first computer. The scene that I distinctively remember is that he had an apartment and one of the rooms was supposed to be a dining room, but it was just full of electronics. It wasn't used for dining. It was just for exploring or yeah. making a computer, putting a computer together for his nieces. That was the coolest thing you could walk into, like wires everywhere, motherboards everywhere, welding machine So everywhere. he would build PCs. That's what he would be doing? Yeah. He would build PCs, fix PCs everyone's PCs in the family who, who would do that. It was key into what I got into later. So one time I was in school and then my brother used to join science fairs and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. One time I saw like a robotics poster mm -hmm. at my school and I was studying my brother and he was like, oh, you should join. I was like, ah, nah, I'm not with robotics. I, I'm into science fairs. When I was 10, there was a robotics academy somehow opening in 2010 in Egypt. Mm -hmm. and my mom found out about it somehow. The moment I walked in into that apartment, it was just like the same exact scene as my uncle's place. It was like kids with robots everywhere, and they had a <laughs> kitchen that also wasn't used as a kitchen. It was a lab, and it was heaven. But that place was too expensive. I went back when I was 14, and then I stayed for like three years until I had to come here. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing. I spent most of my time there even more than school. I made friends that I'm still really close to to this day. And I'm really grateful for that, honestly. Oh, that's beautiful. That's so cool. Honestly, I think it is really inspiring to see somebody you look up to so passionate about something. So today, are you still using your hands? Are you still building things with your brother? Are you building them on your own? How has that led to today? A little fast forward. So I spent three years there at that academy. Um, mm -hmm. And then I met people with whom I decided that, all right, we really like what we're doing. And if we want to keep doing this, we're probably going to go somewhere. Because at that academy, we have seen the path before. People were at the academy, done a bunch of things, and then they're doing even cooler things in U.S. university. So we're like, all right, we got to do that too. So... Me, me and one of my closest friends applied to college together. The whole reason was to study robotics at a U.S. university because they have good labs, competitions, and all of that. What happened is that I was in like national education system. It doesn't align basically with the preparation for the U.S. So by the time I, I was done with the competitions and the prep for the U.S. and Sandritis and everything, I had the TOEFL missing. I was like, all right, I got to apply next year then. I'm going to take a gap year. But then that friend was like, you know what? You should apply to Minerva. I knew about Minerva, but I was like, ah, I'm, I'm going to apply at some point. But then in March, I didn't know that they have a regular decision too. Yeah. One day I just found a random email saying, hey, we have a regular decision too. 
and it closes like in I don't know a week or something. I was like, ah, panic. <laughs> so I I applied. Then I got in. I give a thought about it. I remember, I was going to the US to study robotics. Yeah. But then I got into Minerva, which is pretty cool. <laughs> but yeah, I still wanted robotics. So yeah. I had a few talks with people around the time. I had like a week to think of something, and. I think it was clear that you can still do it there through internships, labs, on your own, and it's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, I knew that it would be like a rough way ahead, similar yeah. to what I have in high school, because that robotics academy that I found, it was not integrated into my curriculum or at my school. It was like, you got to figure out your own way. So I wanted something like more paved this time. Yeah. But then I still went with my first semester in December or something, and like around the end of first semester. Yeah. Um, I was like, you know what? I want to give it another shot. <laughs> and that's what I did. I took yeah. a leave of absence and spent January applying to other places. So at this point, you're already in Minerva in your freshman year. And mm -hmm. that's when you're like, okay, actually, I want to try applying to other robotics programs in the US, right? Yep. I want to ask, why did you decide to say yes to Minerva? Yeah, so that's a great question. The idea of living in, in, in different places seemed that it would contribute a lot to my character development, like self-reliance, independence, all of that. I think that the best thing about Minerva is, best and worst, is that they throw you in places in each four months. Yeah. And then you are supposed to adapt, yeah. which is really nice because you establish your habits and your life and your structures in first year, but then you're supposed to approve them. And within approve them, you add resiliency to your life and your systems and, and character. That's a cool one. Yes. For you, it was mostly this strive for independence. And it sounds like there was a bit of curiosity of adventure for you. Yeah. Curiosity for adventure, a huge potential for growing up. And the idea for that people came from all over the world was also pretty cool. Okay. I promise we're going to go back to your continued story about oh, yeah, yeah, robotics. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just curious because it sounds like you grew up mostly in one place, having traveled outside once. So that isn't, to me, the most obvious candidate for someone who wants to travel all over right? the world. So I'm thinking like, what drove you to want that sort of global experience? Like what sparked that sort of interest in you? Yeah, there are two parts of me and it's still there. A part that really wants to go over the world and like approach all my systems and, and structures and make them adaptable because that's great for us. And then the other part is like, I just want to settle in one yeah. place. So that, that's a great point. They're both there. But when I applied, one part was more dominant because it felt like it's the best option there. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the year, when I was like, all right, I'm going to try. Because like, you know, that thing you would never try. So you don't know if you yeah. give it. No, I think, I think that's the thing that I love about Minerva students is that, you know, everyone has dreams. Everyone, right? Growing up, everyone has these dreams and goals. And so many people in the world give them up for practical reasons. But I feel like when I speak to Minerva students and people who choose to go to Minerva, these are people who don't give up on their dreams and instead give them a shot. And sometimes that means leaving Minerva. But even then, it makes sense to me. It's like, that's what I, that's, that's life, you know, that's how we should live it. So I fully agree with you. I think that's a cool, cool way to think about it. It's like, if you have a dream, if you don't give it a shot, you never know. And so, okay, mm -hmm. that's where we're at. We're at you giving your dream a shot. And writing an essay that basically is saying something along these lines. So <laughs> in that essay, I was basically, I was, I was talking about the, the rooms that I've been, I told you about, like the two scenes at my uncle's apartment and the mm -hmm. robotics academy that I spent most of my time at Yeah. and how I didn't want to give up on 
that kid's dream for practical reasons. I didn't want to grow up in that way that I, yeah, I was, I was afraid to happen. Um, so yeah, I spent four months applying to other colleges and I still had Minerva at the back of my mind because I've always liked Minerva, but at that time of <laughs> immense self-reflection, I realized that I, I actually pretty cool with it. So if I come back, I'm fine. So that was my second option. So I applied to a bunch of places and then in June, July, I got the responses back and I got June a bunch of emails. Yeah. That feels, feels really late for universities, no? Yeah, I think I had a bunch of decisions earlier, but then I had a bunch of wait lists that I heard about like way, way later in I June, see. July. So okay. So earlier I I had a bunch of places that were like, all right, um, here, here is the package, but it's not enough financial aid. So I was like, mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. Um and then there were other places. And that's why I said June and July, because that's that's when I heard like from the last wait list. And that's when I knew it. I was like, all right, I'm coming back to Minerva because I didn't get enough financial aid. Yeah. But then I went back. At that point, I was actually really content or like really in peace with going back because I, I liked Minerva in the first place. It's just that I wanted to give that a shot. Um, yeah. So in going back, I as I said before, I knew that it's possible to do what I what I still wanted. It'll just be a rougher way. But it's still possible. And I, I would say I'm still on the right path of like doing that. So I see. No, I actually, I love that because I think sometimes chasing your dreams ends up with realizing that it was not actually something you needed much out of. Maybe it was just something you wanted to try. And that in itself is valuable too, right? Is when you give something a shot, you realize whether you truly want it or not. And mm -hmm. maybe you just wanted to try. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's, that's really cool. It sounds like you maybe throughout the process of applying to other programs, learn that you are at peace with the decision. Also, because then you don't have to ever wonder what would mm -hmm. happen if you had tried. So you took one semester off, you came back to Minerva. And you're telling me that Although it is more difficult to do robotics at Minerva, which I imagine is because we don't have any labs um, or hands-on equipment, you are still able to do it. I'm curious, how are you able to pursue robotics at Minerva? Is Minerva a good place to do robotics? So let me address your first question first. So you said there isn't like hands-on or labs. For bizarre enough, there is a lab called hands-on lab. Oh, really? <laughs> robotics lab. That's funny. So I told you I joined like a lot of robotics competitions and one time we went to a competition and then one of the other team's mentor Zef Minerva and for his capstone and he had a robotics project that he made into a robotics Wait, is this Achmed? So oh yeah yeah Achmed and Bukle they won the uh like some yeah. some competition and now they have their own company right? Yeah so I've been working there since I've been working there for two years uh, with them. Yeah that's awesome. You're based in Seattle is that right? Yeah and that's also where is my Somewhere work is, it's kind of convenient. And that was really valuable, honestly. Um, and then going to question of is Minerva a right place? I think you can still do it here. Um, mm -hmm. The reason is it's you have internships and you have labs like this and you have faculty that would be supportive as well. Mm -hmm. And you can always reach out to other labs. So it's going to be a rougher way, but it's still possible. You're figuring out yourself, which is closer to what you would have in real world. The idea that you have to like earn work in a lab really hard makes me appreciate it more than an email to a local prof or something. Yeah, um, I see what you mean. It, it's 
it's a bit more of a hard work, but that hard work are lessons learned for the future. Yep. So it's, yeah. it's possible and it has pluses to it too. Yeah. That's really cool. And honestly, you know, I'm really happy to hear that because the reality is that when I was at Minerva, there were no opportunities like this. And ultimately it comes down to sometimes, oftentimes just one person like Ahmed, well, I, mm -hmm. I guess in this case, two people like Ahmed and Bukhari, mm -hmm. both did it to create opportunities like this for future generations. Mm -hmm. So I'm really happy to hear that now we have this program. In fact, I saw them post some internship postings just from Minerva students mm -hmm. uh, recently. So anyone yep. listening that's interested in robotics, you can reach out to Badra, you can reach out to Ahmed. They it's are a doing, opportunity. They're doing some cool work out here. That's awesome. Okay. And now I want to look towards the future. Do you see robotics as the path for you? Yeah. So far, I am thankfully been on a very close path to it. Robotics like a, a big pile of pancake that has many different <laughs> pancakes of different color. Yeah. Um, one of them that I've been working closely with at my previous internship is like low level software for hardware. So mm. software for like components that control LEDs on your motherboard or stuff like that. So that's one aspect. And then other aspects are like motion planning or how can this robot know its environment? These are two aspects that I'm interested in. I've been mostly in the first one, but I want to break into the second as well. So that's the goal. But Either way, I'm happy with where I am and that path. And yeah, and I, I really like software and I really like hardware and I really like that combo that robotics gives you where like also you have something to, to see in real life. So that's hopefully what I see myself too in the future. Yeah. I mean, and obviously with the world of robotics, the nature of it is that you never know where it's going because that's what happens when you're working on the edge of technology innovation. Mm -hmm. So that's really exciting. I'm curious... What is your ideal application of robotics? Now, I know this sounds like a professional focused question mm -hmm. and it can be if you like, like what kind of role robotics play in your professional mm -hmm. life, what kind of area of robotics you want to go into professionally, like that, that's also cool. But part of the question I'm trying to imply is also like more imaginative, more fantastical, like, oh, if robots could do this and I could work on that, that would be really cool. Or if this could be integrated in this part of my life where I, you know, maybe I just don't have a job and I just wake up and go into my robots room and build robots. That would be really cool too. Like mm -hmm. it could be anything, but for you, if you could imagine the ideal relationship you have with robotics, what would that look like in your future? Yeah. So what I really like about it is that it's a creative outlet. That's how I consider it. You see as something being done in real life and then you try to see how you can communicate it to it. Um, so in that process, there is a lot of creativity with the software and the hardware and the interaction between them. I would say one of my favorite projects to work on was soccer robots. And that's mm. close to my capstone right now. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to keep up with it, but it's my idea. So the idea is find ways to enable robots to manipulate balls on the field with high dexterity, because currently they can shoot the balls well. Yeah. But they can pass slightly. Yeah. Uh, I really hated football. That's actually really <laughs> weird, right? Because I suck at football. I don't know how to run with a ball. But there was that competition with soccer robots, and I've been never <laughs> more engaged. It's just really weird. That's it's maybe okay. like that's really funny. And I okay, I'm really curious about this. How big are these robots? What's the situation here? You're physically building these this pitch 
with these little robots kicking balls around? Yeah, so there are multiple leagues, but there is a competition. It's called RoboCup, and its goal is to have robots that beat the FIFA World Cup team in like 2050 or something. No way, so, real like yeah. real life robot, like yeah. human sized robots. That's the goal. So they have many leagues. They have like small size, medium size, humanoid size, and then like mini humanoid or something. Yeah. The one I actually think is most interesting is like the biggest one under the humanoid because the humanoid is just too bulky. Like it's not that efficient to be in that structure yeah. and running anyways. So like mine is focusing on medium size and it's basically like a team of five robots. There's a goalkeeper for each side yeah. and then they're both just trying to find the ball, manipulate it, maneuver around the other teams, kick the ball and make sure to trick the goalkeeper as you kick it so that you yeah, so like normal football. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And how, how big are these robots? Like like a meter so less? It depends on the league. So the small size, the one we went into the its competition, it was like 22 centimeters cylinder and its okay. height is also like 22. The humanoid is, I don't know the height, but it, it looks like a humanoid. Yeah. But it's 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 the least cool one because it's it's the least developed. <laughs> but yeah. And do these robots look humanoid or what do they look like? Make them look humanoid. Like they make them have feet and hands and right. like that. And where are we at with the developments? You said earlier that they can shoot, but they can't really control the ball very well. Is that where we are at with robots, ball players? Well, we're pretty, we're pretty far, but also we're at a very interesting point in robotics and soccer robotics in general, because I told you a little earlier that I see a task in real life and I'm like, all right, how can I make this? make a robot do this. Yeah. So when you have that task, you have two approaches to it. One approach is like, all right, program that thing to do it specifically. So like move until we found the ball. Once you see like something that looks like a ball, maybe you shoot it. That's one way. You're explicitly seeing every single step. And depending on how fragile you develop it, it can still break. The idea of like explicitly seeing all the steps to do one thing. So that's one school which is like programming specific actions. And then the other school is like, all right, when you program specific actions, some actions are just like scale. It goes out of proportion. So for example, if you have like a robot holding an ice cream cone and it's supposed to hold it from like from the side at all times, but then at one point when you have some, maybe a wardrobe above it, you don't want to hold it from the side. You want to hold it from something else, but also not from the top. So programming all these options can scale very quickly. So right. some people are like, yeah, they call it the robotic whack-a-mole or like you try to solve one problem, you have another problem and it's just like becomes very complicated. So another school is like, we want to stop programming explicitly that stuff altogether. We want to have like end-to-end -end learned approaches to robotics and programming tasks at where you're still going to tell it, all right, like go find the ball. But you don't tell it like, hey, move a degree to the right and then like look in that specific way. You're yeah. trying to have reinforcement learning come into the game. Yeah. And more automated approaches so that you yeah. have less areas for error. Yeah. And this is this is where we're at. Like it's almost like a point of debate right now. Some people are like, we're not gonna keep programming them all together. We're gonna try hybrid learn, but then other people are like, no, we're gonna try like end-to-end -end learn, which is like pure reinforcement learning. But between these two, I think. We are more likely than ever, obviously, to have that product soon because, like, there's a lot of developments recently in the image processing, 
and also object manipulation, scene understanding, like making sense of what's around you and all of that. Yeah. And then there comes the problem that I'm focusing on called dexterity problems. Let's say a robot giving you a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. It would do it, but not that precisely your hand. It wouldn't hold it perfectly. Yeah. So like that, they call it like a dexterity problem. And that's a really big one because in order for robots to be useful and replace humans to do better things, <laughs> you want them to be precise. You want them to be like dexterous at all times. Yes. And there's like a family of dexterity problems. And in, in the in the problem of soccer robots, for example, they shoot the ball, but mm-hmm. they cannot like precisely manipulate it to like yeah. you know, pass it to the other person. And also like manipulating the, uh, the player next to you that I'm interested in. Mm. And so that's probably more have to do with hardware, right? I imagine that's a very mechanical problem to solve. How do you even design a robot to be able to move in that way? Right. The human body is, if that's what you're trying to emulate, then that's millions of years of evolution that you're trying to, you're trying to redesign with tools. You know, it sounds like you lean more towards the hardware side, interests you a bit more. Would you say that's true? Yeah. I actually like writing software more. Oh, Um, really? Okay. Yeah. So I, in Robotics Academy, I used to be on all sides, but now I, I like writing software more. What I care about at the end is that I like it to be running on a robot somewhere. I don't care if it's in the floor above me, below or something. I also enjoy the process of collaborating with the other teams to figure these processes out. Yeah. So how far do you think we are from like a robot soccer team that would seem like they're playing soccer? Let's say that the goal is by 2050 is to be a World Cup team, which, you know, is... The best of the best. Do you feel that we're on track to hitting that goal by 2050? Well, honestly, until last year, I would say we were pretty far, but <laughs> there's a lot of advancements in AI recently. Yeah. We're not talking about language models, but like image recognition that are really actually helpful. Mm-hmm. And then also adapting different machine learning techniques for robots. So actually, I can send you a video later. Yes. But there is, is a robot <laughs> team already. It's playing very humanly already because they watch a lot of humans play the whole combo together to have dexterous manipulation along with acting humanly enough which is one one face of artificial intelligence and also like sensing your environment well enough and moving fast enough and all of that i haven't seen it combined so perfectly yet but honestly 2050 doesn't seem too far wow okay i mean no lots of football fans were probably not happy to to see a robot (laughs) team beats like a human team but i i kind of want to see that like that that sounds really interesting to me here's the thing though i'm more inclined to say that it's gonna be with robots that don't look like humanoid that's always a saying in robotics where you don't need to be building a humanoid You, you can build something else that is more geared towards your to purpose. goal to, yeah to, to your purpose yeah so if we if we're insistent on looking at a humanoid it might be a little far but if we're like i have like i don't know things that can just grab the ball and run right next to you uh that might be a little a lot closer uh, yeah because i'm thinking what you guys could do is design the perfect robot to be a goalkeeper and it could be really big it could be like really fast and it doesn't need to run very fast you know it just yeah. needs to react quickly but then I guess in that sense, that's where you get to the question of like, then is it a fair competition between mm-hmm. a human and a robot? I know a lot of football yeah. fans will probably not like it. That's the real debate, I think, around AI now too. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are really terrified of the advancements of technology. But I think what I find interesting about it is that 
it raises a lot of really important questions that we should ask ourselves as humans, mm-hmm. you know, it's what is it that we find valuable? And I'm actually mm-hmm. curious, I know we should be wrapping up soon, but maybe this is, this is one last one we can talk a little bit about, which is, do you have any thoughts on that conversation around, especially right now, it's a really big one, but the entrance of like these really powerful AI chatbots, like ChatGPT, so on and so forth. People are now having a lot of discussions and opinions about, are we moving too fast? Should we slow down? How do we do this in an ethical, responsible way? And I'm curious for you, if you have any thoughts around those questions. Yeah, so going to the robotics context first, there is definitely a lot of constraints, even on the game we're designing. So like the robots Mm -hmm. we're designing, we're not giving like ultimate power. They have power constraints, speed constraints, weight constraints, height constraints. But I think all these constraints make us appreciate football more and appreciate us this act that we do as humans. We already have things that are faster than a human, but in in making the process, I guess it, it, it makes us appreciate the idea of like, someone who can run that fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's honestly not exactly my domain of expertise, but as someone who just living through it, I think it's valuable to save us things that we really didn't need to be doing, like writing an email that you really didn't want to be doing. But I, I really hope it doesn't replace a lot of very essential parts, like understanding math deeply or understanding literature deeply or processing things for yourself. I honestly not sure if it can replace that in the near future because mm-hmm. people are becoming increasingly aware of like, if you want to use it actually effectively, you're not going to be on autopilot. You're going to still be engaged and be using similar yeah. skills with it to get something useful. It's a very exciting era, honestly. It's almost unbelievable, honestly, to believe in this time where things are moving that fast. So Yeah, I agree with you. I think the way I see it is that this is just another advancement We have advancements in all areas of life every day. To be fair, this one is quite groundbreaking. It does change a lot. And I think the way it changes the world is that it removes a lot of constraints that were previously there, right? And that's huge. I mean, that's how we operate. As humans, we respond to constraints. Mm -hmm. And and now a constraint has been removed or Mm -hmm. multiple constraints depends how you see it. And, And to me... Pushing back against it is is the sort of clearly futile way to do this. It happens every time we invent something groundbreaking. But yeah. I think instead of focusing our energy on how bad this is going to be, which the reality is that it will have impacts, everything mm-hmm. will have waves, but maybe we should focus our energy more on how can we use this tool to do good things and mm-hmm. to do so equitably. Um, you know, I, I think you're right. Like, if you, yes, ChatGPT is extremely powerful, but if you dig into it and start using it, you'll start to realize you still need to be clever to manipulate the tool to do what you want. And if there's a skill set that's developing that we see around us of how to utilize AI in the most effective way, which tells you that there's no autonomy that these AIs are gaining right now. We still need to give it instructions that it's a toolkit, it's a skill set. And so I agree with you that this is just one more step. The way I see it is that it's like the printing press. It's like the washing Mm -hmm. machine. It's like the car. It eliminates a part of our constraints in our daily lives. But ultimately, most of the people are just going to use it to make their lives a little bit easier, to Mm -hmm. make that email a little bit faster, to not have Mm -hmm. to take notes in a meeting, to make Mm -hmm. that 
presentation a little faster. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's where we're headed. As humans, we still are creatures of habit. So we're not really going to change all that much of how we mm-hmm. do things. Uh, not at least in the, as quick as we might think. That's my stance on it. I don't think it's going to be as groundbreaking as people are so scared of it being. I know a lot of artists are probably going to lose their jobs, which is not fun. You know, like mm-hmm. I think we should always be encouraging more art. But also with every advancement, there's drawbacks and mm-hmm. we should be focused more on how can we integrate this into our world rather than how can we slow it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty huge. I think the biggest aspect, as you said, is the removing the constraints. You know how people were talking about like internet and how free online lessons are improving the, the access to education worldwide? Mm-hmm. That is huge. And that, that is something I've been always thinking about. I learn more math from Khan Academy than from my teachers at school. Yeah. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And now with removing the constraint, I not only have videos, I also have a tutor. So it's it's pretty incredible to enable people not just in a specific country or a specific place that has certain privilege, but everyone just who who's still privileged enough to, to understand English maybe or have internet to have high quality education as someone who's in a much better off place. It also creates opportunities. Like if we use ChatGPT as an example, like I work at a company where most of the people, for them, English is their second language or third, rather. When you're operating professionally in that language, it's more than just knowing the language. It's about knowing the right words, the right connotations, the right cultural mm-hmm. contexts, which can be really difficult for some people mm-hmm. to pick up. But with ChatGPT, you can have an AI write it for you and learn from it exactly these little things that don't really matter ultimately you have your ideas you have your work and this ai can now make it rapid in a nice way for you that other people will respond positively to and i think there's a lot of opportunity here to actually create more equity within the world look you and i would not be at minerva if it wasn't Mm -hmm. because of the internet like how could a small tiny school in san francisco reach people from all over the world we do have to acknowledge the, the downsides and the, the hurt that's going to come out of this change. But we also need to acknowledge the benefits that could come out of this. I've spoken to people who very much disagree with me. I see why it's a controversial mm-hmm. topic, but at least I really do believe that we should be focused our energy on how can we make this an a opportunity for everyone and not just for the people who can you know, speak English, just mm-hmm. for the people who have the money, just for the people who have the education. Mm-hmm. How can we make this a good tool for everyone? You know, it's honestly surprising how fast Minerva is, is responding to it. Professors are talking about it. Policies are changing. I think they're taking really nice steps forward in that plane. Also, glad people are talking more about it. How we can we integrate it into our work structure? But I hope they are not eliminating things that are actually useful for us to still be doing and know how to do. If we can just overcome the fear, I, and it's so human to be scared. Right. I think that's very normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we can just embrace it as something that is also human, like I think the reason we're scared of AI is because we don't see it as human. But the reality is that like it is a human creation. Yeah. My test is like, could I have done this if I had the time? Like, is this something yeah. I don't know how to do and I'm missing out on the process of learning? It's a choice, ultimately, right? If, if you choose not to integrate AI into your life, you can live a perfectly healthy life. But for those who are interested, I think it's a really cool thing mm-hmm. to have. I, I'm also excited to see robots beating human teams in football. It is pretty cool. <laughs> on, on, on a side note, by the way, 
yeah. similar to what we said that we're far from general intelligence for mm-hmm. AI right now, same thing for robots. We're also far from general purpose robots that you can throw everywhere and do everything. And that's another problem also that's been thinking about a lot. All right. So for our listeners who are scared of robots taking over, just you heard it here first from Badra. Don't worry about it. It's not (laughs) happening anytime soon. You can relax and go about your day. No robots will be taking over anytime soon. Would you say that's true? I would like to think so. (laughs) I I, I, honestly, it seems kind of distant. Yeah, it does seem. Okay, cool. Good to know. Good to know, Badra. That's happy to hear it. Okay. So I think we are wrapping up this episode. But yeah, it's sorry. fantastic, a conversation that we're having. I'm really glad we got to talk. That was cool. Yeah, absolutely. And for our Minervan audiences who maybe want to reach out to you and ask you follow-up questions about robotics, where's the best place they could reach you? Telegram is cool. Cool. Good to know. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Badra. It was definitely my pleasure. It was nice finally to talk to you. Thank you. That was fun. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and automatically get notified about new episodes on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at humansofminerva.podcasts for all the latest updates and announcements. And finally, special thanks to our editor, Hilary Tang, for working her magic on this episode. Thanks for listening to Humans of Minerva. See you next time.